If you would take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Praise the name of the Lord, Luke chapter 19. Praise God. This morning I want to preach the second message. I started last Sunday preaching a message entitled, The Road to the Resurrection. Uh, Obviously, next Sunday being Easter Sunday, we'll probably bring this one to a close. But today I want to... I want to make a few stops on the road to the resurrection. Uh, I believe it is important for us to recognize, it seems, that as Jesus is getting closer and closer to suffering on the cross and about to go through all that He went through for us, that a lot of times we focus, I know often we focus on His suffering, certainly The scripture does, in fact, talk about it. But as we mentioned last week, talked a little bit about the fact that Jesus gave and had told his disciples all the way through his ministry that he came to this earth to suffer uh, at the hands of men, to die on the cross. And he also followed up on, on every occasion that he told them about what was to come He told his disciples that he would be raised on the third day. Being raised on the third day was something that it seems like nobody got. In fact, last week we dealt with in Luke chapter 18 what Jesus informed his disciples about, and he's getting close to the time where that was going to take place. The Bible says that his disciples didn't understand it. It's an amazing thing. They didn't understand anything that Jesus was saying about this particular thing and what was going to take place. And so Jesus at that point explains to them what was going to happen. It didn't really matter. They didn't understand what was going to happen. But Jesus let them know and he let them in on it. But now we're going to take, and I want to this morning, I want to make three stops along the road to the resurrection. Three important stops that I believe that all of us can learn something from it. The very first stop we're going to make is at the triumphal entry of Jesus because it is a powerful picture of praise. A picture of powerful praise. For all of us today, I can't even begin to imagine what church would be like without the ability and the opportunity to praise God and to worship God. Say, Pastor, I don't really come from a tradition where it is that we do that vocally and openly, and I, I can certainly understand that. I don't knock the tradition at all. But I do find in the Bible that it encourages us to be open and expressive with our praise and with our worship. In fact, on that day that Jesus would enter Jerusalem, we're not going to take the time to read the whole passage and read about it because we've got some other stops that we need to make. But there was something that took place on that first, very first Palm Sunday that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was coming in, the the fulfilling prophecy of the prophet Zechariah as he said that your king is coming lowly and, and humble, riding on 
the colt of a donkey, not just a donkey, but a young donkey, riding into Jerusalem as Jesus did in humility. And in that moment, all of a sudden, the Bible tells us that the people of God begin to praise Him. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 37. <coughs> Luke 19 and verse 37. It says, When He came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples. Now listen, it says they began to joyfully praise God in, a, in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now I want you to understand one thing first of all. The Bible doesn't indicate here that Jesus orchestrated the praise. It only, it only indicates that he orchestrated the events on which he would be able to obtain this, this donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He told his disciples, go into a village that's near Jerusalem. And you're going to find somebody there. Uh, there there's going to be a donkey there. I want you to untie it. And if, if the owner says to you, what are you doing? He says, tell them the master needs it. And they're going to let you take it. And that's exactly what took place. That is essentially the only orchestrating of the events that Jesus did in that moment. But what took place in verse 37 that we just read was a picture of powerful praise. And how is praise powerful? I believe one of the things that as a church we need to keep in mind when we gather together that it shouldn't be somebody in the pulpit cheerleading, leading you into a place where it is you get so pumped up that you have no choice but to do anything else. But here is powerful praise. It was first spontaneous. Get that. Because spontaneous praise, brothers and sisters, is not Pastor Lawrence leading the worship from behind the pulpit or Julian leading the worship from the drums. It's not somebody standing up saying, well, they're doing it, so I guess I'll just follow along. That's not spontaneous praise. You know what spontaneous praise is? Spontaneous praise, it does not need somebody else to urge you and to push you and to pump you up, but instead it is recognizing who God is, who Jesus is, what He's done for you, and saying, God, I have got to praise you for all that you have done. Would to God that we would have more spontaneous praise. Sometimes we come together and worship. Some of, some of you don't even, you, you miss the worship, so you're not a part of that. But listen, let me tell you something. If praise is not spontaneous, then what in the world are we doing? Why come together? Listen, spontaneous praise is something that is powerful. It, it can change the whole atmosphere of a service. If we will come together and we will say, God, I'm going to do my part to praise you today, rather than waiting for somebody to say, Pastor, I had a rough night. You know, I'm tired. I, I'm not feeling well. Now, look, I, I want to tell you, there have been times I've stood in this pulpit where I have wanted to just go back home and go to bed. 
I, I have not felt well. I have not, there's not, there, I've been in pain or whatever the situation is. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, God is still worthy of your praise. Listen, He is still worthy to receive from you the glory and the honor. Don't do it for me. You do it for Him. Spontaneous praise. Praise that is powerful is truly spontaneous praise. It is praise that comes from your lips at no urging from anybody else. It's just, oh, thank you, Jesus. Say, well, pastor, are we waiting for another church service to do this? See, the, the beauty about this is you can do this at any time. You can do this wherever you are. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You get to Monday morning and you don't feel like going to work? Oh, thank you, Jesus. You're still worthy of praise. Listen, trust me. You're, you're, you may look at your job and say, dear God in heaven, do I have to do this anymore? Yes, yes you do. Trust me, folks. You do not want to quit that job. Do not walk away from that job because you will have a hard time finding another one. Trust me, the, the reports are, that say, oh, unemployment's down, unemployment's down, trust me, they have still not recovered from when it all came crashing down in 2008. It still has not happened. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what we have, we can say, God, I thank you for what I have, the provision that I have. I'm going to praise you for it. Yes, my boss is a little bit crazy. I'm, I'm you know, my, my job's a little bit, you know, whacked, but I'm gonna, God, I thank you for what it is that you've provided for me. I'm going to praise you for it anyway. I'm going to say thank you, Jesus, as I'm on the train. I'm going to say thank you, Lord, when I'm driving on the bus. I'm going to give you spontaneous praise you know look we live in the city right every now and then on the train does somebody get on there and they start talking out loud and they're doing things out loud it's all right go ahead just join in you know we when we were in new york we were our, our very first subway ride this last trip we were in new york we get on i can't remember where we were going i think we were i don't remember where it was but anyway we took the girls somewhere we get on the subway and some guy comes on there, and he starts preaching in Spanish. And he's going at it. And, you know, everybody's kind of looking around. They're just, you know, they're not looking at him. They're not looking directly at his eyes. But he's, he's preaching up a storm because my wife speaks Spanish, so she flew me in. And I caught a few words here and there that I could understand. And I knew. And as he walked by me, he says, I, he says in Spanish, I don't speak English, but the Holy Spirit knows how to speak your language. I mean, yeah, I was like, I, that's, you know, and he was preaching and preaching and preaching, and he kept on preaching. We got off the subway, and he kept on. He stayed right on there just preaching up a storm. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying you got to get on the train and start preaching. I'm just saying don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to praise him. Let it be spontaneous from your heart and from your life. Not only that, but the Bible tells us in verse 37 that it was joyful praise that they began to joyfully praise God. This was not a, you know, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, like, you know how, how we kind of we go through the motions. You know, we, we just sort of, it's church. That's what we do. This is called Praise Tabernacle. We're, we praise God. We, we do that. So let me just through the motions. You know, we go through these motions oh, 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 over and over and over again. And, and all of a sudden, there's this, this invading thought in the back of our minds. What am I going to do later? 
What is it that, oh, tomorrow, oh, God, I, I'm faced with this tomorrow. Oh, God, you know, we, we get down. But I want you to know, as much as Jesus had told them, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die and be raised to life. The Bible tells us that they were joyful in that moment, that they joyfully began to praise God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, God wants us to joyfully praise Him. Not because your life is easy, because frankly, sometimes our life is difficult. Sometimes you can say, you know what, I've had a rough go of it. But in the midst of it all, you can know that there is a God in heaven who still has a plan. That no experience that you have gone through is wasted. That there is nothing that you have gone through that you can just relegate to the side and say, God can't use that. No, but instead you can say, God, I joyfully praise you that there is nothing in my life that has been wasted. That you can use everything. God, you are worthy of the praise and I'm going to lift my heart to you with great joy for all that you have done for me. Isn't it easy to focus on the negative? It's easy to, you know, focus on, on those things that are not so good, those things that are depressing, those things that are discouraging. It's so easy to do that. And yet the Bible lets us know that on that particular day, listen, it wasn't long before that that Jesus had told them yet again for like the seventh time, listen, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And, and a little bit later on in the day, Jesus is going to tell Peter, Peter, you know what, before the end of this night is out, before this day is over, you're going to deny knowing me three times. Oh, no, Jesus, that's not me. I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Well, we know the story. We don't have time to get into that, what Peter did. Oh, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. Three times he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. But for this moment, this little picture, this little vignette of the, the disciples and the others that had gathered around them, the Bible says there was a joy that rose up within them. Listen, don't waste the joy. Don't just chalk up the joy for, well, my family came over and I'm so happy. Or don't waste the joy by saying, well, my family didn't come over and I'm so glad. You know, don't waste the joy. Give it to the Lord. Whatever your family situation is like. <laughs> Could be anything, really. I'm not here to get into all of that and all of our dysfunctions that we have and carry with us. And we look at our family and say, they're crazy. Maybe it is we're crazy. I, I don't know. But, you know, don't waste the joy on, on just chalking it up for, well, you know, I just woke up feeling good. Well, why? Because maybe it's a moment for you to just joyfully praise God. Maybe God's giving you that moment. He's placing that joy in your heart for no good reason. The other day, I think Riley, Riley said uh, to, to my wife, she said, you know what, Mom? I'm deciding. She's been on a little rough time at school with, with some of the, you know, uh, the kids, as, as it happens in life. You know, and she, she woke up the other morning. She said, Mom, I'm going to just be happy today. I'm just going to decide to be joyful today and to have joy in my heart. And I want you to know something, brothers and sisters, there is something very real to that, that when you understand that though you are going to face struggles, what did we read last week in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and verse 2? Who for the joy set before him, he endured 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. I want you to know that Jesus looked beyond the suffering, looked beyond the pain, looked beyond the difficulty, and understood there is a great joy that will come out of my suffering, out of my enduring the cross and going through it so man can be rescued from their sin. It was joyful praise. It was also praise that was directed to God. You see, praise has to have an object for it to really be praise. Uh, you, you can say, you know, well, uh, it doesn't even make sense to say praise for nothing. Praise to nothing. Just praise God. When we say hallelujah, we're actually saying the literal translation of that one word is praise be to Yahweh. Praise be to God, Jehovah. When we say thank you, we're not saying just thank you, nothing. We're saying thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. This was praise that was directed to God. A praise always has to be directed to Him for it to be powerful, for it to be effective, for it to have an impact both on our lives and around those and those that are around us. When we're praising, we have to understand that when we come into our church, when we come into the service on a Sunday morning, we come into prayer meeting on Tuesday night, and we begin to praise God and we begin to worship Him, it is not that we come together and we just say, well, let me just do this because this is what I do. No, I, what we have to understand is we have to put our hearts and our minds on Him. We have to reach out to Him and say, Lord, You are going to be the focus of my praise. You are going to be the one that I will worship. You are going to be the one that I will lift my heart toward and I will give my best to. Lord, I am going to reach out to You and give You my whole heart as I praise You and as I worship You. Praise Him for what He has done. Praise God. You say, well, look, you look at my situation and it's, it's so difficult. Praise God. Just give praise to God. I'm not saying that's going to make the problem go away. I'm not saying that all of a sudden, magically, poof, the problem disappears. I am simply saying, what is more faith-building for your life? To focus on that problem or to focus on the one who is able to take you through it? The three Hebrew boys, they didn't escape the fire by going around it. They didn't escape the fire by all of a sudden vanishing. They went into the fire and they escaped it by going through it. You see, God is able to take you through your situations. It is reason to praise God because God can preserve you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering. He will surround you and help you and put a hedge about you. So it was directed in the right place. It was also full of expectancy. Let me just, you can write this verse of Scripture down, but in Matthew as he records this, as the gospel writers do, they often record things that the other writer did not necessarily record for us. But the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9, it says this, Matthew 21 verse 9, I hear some pages turning, so I'll give you a second to get there if you want to see it. Matthew 21 and verse 9, the Bible says that the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
heaven. I'm reading from the new NIV, the NIV 2011 version, so it might be a little different from any NIV that you have. But the Bible says this, Hosanna, Hosanna. We sang that this morning when we sang, I will call upon the Lord, Hosanna. Blessed be the rock. What does that word mean? The word Hosanna means save now. Save now, we pray. So when they were saying this and proclaiming this, there was an expectancy. Now, they were expecting God to do one particular thing. The saving that they were expecting was the kind of saving that they had been hoping for in a Messiah, and that was save us from these wretched Romans. Will you please, Lord, get these guys out of our land so we can be absolutely free? They were expecting that in this moment, if Jesus was in fact the Messiah, that he was going to rise and he was going to be that political Messiah. But as they were saying, save now, I don't know, and I believe they really did not comprehend what kind of salvation that they fully, truly needed. Nonetheless, given all of that, they were still expecting something great. And something great about a week from now was going to happen. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, our praise may not be perfect. It may not come from perfect hearts. And sometimes maybe it is that we are expecting God to do one thing and God will turn around and he will do something completely different. But I want you to understand that when you praise him, you can expect God to come through for you. It may not be exactly how you had wanted him to, to, to handle the situation, but God will come through and he will bring salvation. You can expect him to do it. Praise has to be expectant praise for it to be powerful praise. Now, let's take another stop, shall we? We're going to fast forward a few days and we're going to follow Jesus not just to the triumphal entry, we just stopped there. We're going to move forward to the triumphal entreaty. What do I mean by that? An entreaty is a prayer. And this is where we see powerful prayer. We're going to go with him to the garden, turn over to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start reading at verse 36 and go down through to verse 46. 26, 36, 46 is how that's going to work. Matthew 26, verse 36, reading down through verse 46. And we're going to stop at the place of powerful prayer. The Bible says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. That wasn't all the disciples. Remember, the Bible points out, the other gospel writers point out that it was Peter, James, and John that went with Jesus, and those three were there. The Bible says this, or it actually says it after this. It says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he came, and then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The Bible indicates that he wanted them to pray. 
going a little farther, he fell down on his face, or fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not, if it is not possible for this cup to, pass, uh, to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is being delivered, is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I want you to see something about this. To this place where prayer overpowered everything else. Prayer did not deliver Jesus from having to go to the cross. But in that moment, Jesus simply yielded to the Father and to His will and what He knew was the Father's will. I talked about this, and I'm not going to get into too much detail uh, on Tuesday night, not this past, but I believe the one it was before. I talked about the fact that Jesus, when He was faced with the cross, and He was faced as in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't fully, and I, I think I mentioned this briefly, touched on it last week as well, that we don't fully comprehend what it was for Him to have to face the cross. You see, as a human being, He knew about uh, you know, the, the Roman crucifixion. Roman crucifixion was common. It was not something that they would not have known about. And they knew how horrific it was. They knew how horrible it would be, how painful and excruciating it would be. He knew the suffering physically that he was going to have to go through. And in all of this, he knew in this situation what it was that he would be going through spiritually as well. I cannot imagine what it would be. And I mentioned this last week. I have the, the guilt of my own sin before I came to Christ to deal with and to have to carry. It was a horrible weight. It was a terrible, terrible thing to have to carry around. But imagine the guilt of the sins of all of mankind being heaped upon this one man, this spotless lamb that he would give his life. Imagine how that would have felt to him. It's no wonder he prayed the way that he did. But I want you to see this one thing. It was powerful prayer because he prayed when no one else prayed with him. You see, sometimes the most powerful prayer is when you know you are alone in a situation and you are calling upon God and you're crying out to God saying, God, you've got to help in this situation. I need your strength. I need your power. And you know you can't call somebody. Maybe they're at work or maybe it is you simply are going through something. You don't want it to, to, to divulge to anybody. You don't want to, to lay that out there for everybody and anybody to just talk about and think about and worry about. But instead, it is a moment for you to go to prayer. It was that time. Listen, he wanted his disciples to pray, but in, in, in that regard, he in, encouraged them and admonished them, 
pray that you don't fall into temptation. He wasn't even asking them to pray for him. He's just saying, you need to pray. This is a moment, this is a time to pray. But he prayed when nobody else would pray with him. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that there are times in our lives where we feel alone. We feel down and we feel discouraged. That is not a time to run away from the prayer closet. It is a time for us to get down and do business with God and say, God, I am going to run to you. I am going to come to you and give myself in prayer. It was powerful because he was able to pray regardless of those who simply fell asleep around him. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives where it seems like nobody really comprehends what it is that we're dealing with and going through. That is a time where your prayer may seem alone, but you're never alone. You're never alone. There is a Father who is listening. There is a God in heaven who cares. He hears and He answers your prayer. Listen, you can run to Him regardless of who is or is not around you praying for you or with you in your situation. You still have a God in heaven who sees exactly what you're going through and you can run to Him. But not only that, He prayed when no one else prayed with Him. He prayed in the face of terrible suffering. You see, a lot of times when we know bad things are going to happen or things are going to, you know, maybe the doctor is giving the report you don't want to hear, you can still pray because you know that you serve a great God. You can still pray and call upon God. Maybe it is that somebody has come, walked into your office and they've given you news about the company that it's just, you know, it's folding, it's going under. You can pray in the face of suffering. You can pray in the face of it. Oh, why? Because Jesus was able to do it. Jesus didn't take that moment where it was he recognized he was going to suffer and say, well, you know what? This is just too difficult. I can't even pray. I can't even bring myself to do it. No, that is the time where you need to bring yourself to the place of prayer and say, God, I may be going through this suffering. I may be going through this difficult time, but I am going to come to you and trust in you in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my situation. But the other final thing that I want you to see, the final thing I want you to see about this is that he prayed this powerful prayer because he prayed the right prayer. And what was the right prayer? The right prayer was simply this. My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That is the right prayer. Listen, when you come to God, I want you to know the right prayer, brothers and sisters, is for you and I to say, Lord, it's not what I want, but what you want that counts the most that matters the most. It is your will that is most important in all of this. It's not my will. It's not your will, brothers and sisters. It is God's will that matters the most. We have to learn to pray the right kind of prayer. Lord, I may have this in my mind, but it's not what I want that really counts or matters. It's what you desire for my life in this situation. However you want to use me, however you want to work through me, and whatever you want to do to me, Lord, I'm going to be willing to say yes to you and follow your way and follow your plan and go after it with all of my heart, my soul, and my mind. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. That is the right prayer. The Bible tells us, Paul wrote in the book of Romans and tells us in Romans chapter 8, 
that he says this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses when we don't know how to pray as we should. He prays through us with groanings that can't be uttered according to the will of God. That is a prayer that cannot miss. When you pray according to the will of God, when you say, Lord, I'm yielding to your will and to your plan, brothers and sisters, you are praying the right kind of prayer. Pray according to his will. There was one final stop that I want us to take and to go on, and it is this, the triumphal endurance. And that is, it is a stop where there was powerful, I'm going to lay a theological word on you, propitiation. That is spelled P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N, propitiation. What does it mean? It simply means a covering. It means a covering. It is, in fact, the NIV actually translates that word. It doesn't use that word so much. It uses the words, uh, a sacrificing atonement. That is, the atonement was to satisfy God. Remember, God was absolutely holy. Sin had to be dealt with in justice. In order for God to be just, sin had to be dealt with. So we have, to, we have this melding of the mercy of God, the justice of God, the, the, uh, God coming and saying, listen, sin has to, be, has to be punished. So all of that was heaped upon Him. Ultimately, it is that Jesus became a covering for man's sin, listen to this, making it possible for God to provide forgiveness. A lot of times we think, well, it's, it's the love and the mercy of God that provides forgiveness. That is true. But it's also the fact that Jesus paid the price for your sin. He went before the judge. He hand, the, the sentence was handed down to him. He was the only one who could die for the sins of mankind. You could not die for your own sins because it still would not satisfy the justice of God. It wouldn't take away your sin. It would only be the punishment. It was only a spotless lamb that could potentially take away that sin and wipe it all away. Listen, essentially it is something that Christ did for us to God. He satisfied God's wrath by being that supreme and perfect sacrifice, opening up the way for mankind to have a relationship. With God. This is the beautiful thing about the scripture. Listen, if we don't understand what Jesus has done, I would encourage you to go back and take a look at that and understand that Jesus opened up a way that you did not have before. In fact, we see it playing out literally as Jesus died on the cross. The Bible tells us, Matthew records this. In Matthew chapter uh, 26, it records, or 27, I believe it is, one of those chapters in there, it records that when Jesus died, that the, the, the veil that separated mankind from the Holy of Holies, that thick, thick veil that nobody could have torn, it was torn from top to bottom, from the very top of the temple all the way down to the bottom, all of a sudden, this, this, this place that no one was able to go, only the high priest, and that once a year, and he had to have a sacrifice made for his sins, all of a sudden, this tear occurs in the temple, and now this place is opened up. It signifies the fact that, that God was satisfied with 
the punishment that Jesus took for you and for me, and now we have open access into the very presence of God. The Old Testament, the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish was required. And yet, it was required often. In fact, every, the Bible records for us that even the high priest had to have a lamb sacrificed for his own sins, could not enter the presence of God because the high priest was a sinful man and therefore had to have that happen. But now the Bible says this. It tells us that Jesus did it once for all. Let me read this verse of Scripture to you in Hebrews. There are other book, uh, verses of Scripture in Hebrews that we could read as well. But the Bible says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to... Uh, offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, he was a covering against the wrath of God. In God's perfect holiness and justice, sin had to be punished. And so it was when Jesus laid down his life on the cross, the wrath of God was shown to mankind. Listen to Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. The Bible says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That is, that is those words are being substituted for the word propitiation. A sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now it has come upon Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice and he has now satisfied the wrath of God so the wrath of God does not have to be poured out on you. I, I hope you caught that because I'm not going to repeat it. He satisfied the wrath of God so you don't, have to, you don't have to experience the wrath of God. You don't have to take. We, by faith, we reach out and take hold of the blood of Christ and say, Lord, it is the covering for my life. The blood is the covering for my life. All the sins I've committed in the past, if the enemy is throwing it up in my face, trust me, it's just the enemy. It's not God. Because God is going to look at you now through the filter of the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees you not for what you have done, but for what Jesus has done for you. His, having His wrath be satisfied was not God's ultimate goal, though. It wasn't His ultimate goal. That was only part of the story. It paved the way for something more beautiful and something more wonderful. And it is this, that propitiation was a covering for reconciliation. It wasn't so that God could, oh, I've appeased an angry God. No, no, no. Don't, don't view God like this, this, you know, angry, vengeful kind of God. That, that's, that, that's only part of the story. He had to deal with sin because he's perfectly holy. But he is so loving. He loves mankind so much that he desired not to just have his wrath satisfied and that's it, good. No, no, no. He now wants to have a relationship to be reconciled with man. The Bible says this. Turn over one final passage of Scripture, two verses of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5. 
And I'm going to bring this message to a close. The Bible says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says this, all of this is from God. From who? From God. He's talking about the Father in this particular situation. Paul is differentiating between the Trinity. He is saying all of this is from God who reconciled us to Himself. How? Through Christ. And gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Paul is talking about his ministry, but also talking about the ministry of believers. God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself. Do you get this? Do you get the great love and the mercy of God? God didn't want it just to be that his wrath was satisfied. God now wanted to have a relationship with mankind. He wanted man to come to him, to worship him, to love him, because he loved them so much. He provided a means by which they could now have a relationship with Him. Listen, the Bible goes on and it says this, that God was reconciling the world to Himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's pretty intense. And He has committed to us this message or the message of reconciliation. Think about that for a minute. If there's anybody who could hold anything against you, it is God. And He doesn't. Why? Because Jesus became that covering, that atoning sacrifice, so that now God's ultimate goal was to have mankind be reconciled to Himself. Oftentimes when we think about reconciliation, you know, at least on, an, on a human and an earthly level, we think about two imperfect parties who have offended one another, getting back together to try to iron out problems and differences of the past. But that, that is, isn't entirely the picture of reconciliation between God and man, because God is not the offending party at all. He has no explanations to give and no forgiveness to seek from you. He has not hurt you. He has not done anything against you. He has not harmed you. He has not sinned against you because he cannot sin. Listen, when it talks about reconciliation, it's about man and man's hostility toward God being wiped away, the sin being wiped away, and us being reconciled to a God who loves us and cares for us. God does not have to stand there and ask for your forgiveness for anything. He merely stands waiting for mankind to be brought back to Him through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is sinful yet forgiven man being presented back to the Father in a relationship that's only possible through Jesus Christ. It's only found through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He was saying that before his death, but he was looking forward to his death as being that final moment by which he could be that covering to open up the way for us to have a relationship with a God who loves us 
And he loves you so much that he sent his son to this earth to die on the cross for your sins. I hope today that these three stops we made on the road to the resurrection will be a reminder to all of us of what it is that God desires from us. Certainly, He desires us to participate in powerful praise. Certainly, He desires us to be a part of that time and that experience where we can worship Him. He desires us to be a part of powerful prayer. Listen, Don't make excuses for yourself not to pray. Make excuses for everything else in life but that thing. Let prayer be the dominating force in your life. Say, Lord, let me pray with great power. In the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in the face of difficulty, let me learn to call upon you. And let me pray the right prayer that it's not my will but yours be done. And let us experience this great powerful propitiation that has come to us, this covering, this atoning blood that was shed for us, that we might have freedom in Christ. Listen, without it, you wouldn't be here. Without it, you wouldn't be in Christ. You would be lost in sin. You would be far away from Him. But because of His great blood, the Bible lets us know that we have been brought near to Him. We have access. Can we stand to our feet today?